0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. I have a confession to make to you guys that it's quite an accomplishment, but it's one I'm not necessarily proud about and go around boasting about. I have watched the entire five part movie saga called Twilight. If you don't know what that is, it's about vampires falling in love with humans. It's odd. (laughs) Or if you forgot. Yeah. Um, I never set out to do this. I never thought, I've got to see that. That's amazing. I just want to. It was just, I was like, oh, it's like this flick, like like chick flick stuff. And it seemed like that to me at least. And um, yeah. Okay. So you agree that it is, I guess. Um, But here's what happened. We had a friend who lives far away whom we treasure and are, and, and have a, a really good past with. And she was coming to visit, Brittany and I. And um, to be ready for her coming, we had to do some things. She wanted, upon her arrival, because this was right when the final, the finale, the fifth movie was going to be released in theaters. She wanted to see the fifth and final movie in theaters. And Brittany and I are like, well, I mean, if this is what she wants to do, we'll do it. But that also meant that we had some homework to do, because if we were going to appropriately appreciate the finale, the the climax of this entire saga, we had to know the story leading up to the story, right? And so Brittany and I dutifully rented, (laughs) because we rented them, right? It wasn't even like on Netflix or anything. I I think this was like pre-Netflix, wasn't it? I don't even know. Time gets like lost when you get old. I'm sorry. When you get older than I was then. Um, (laughs) um, yeah doesn't it time kind of gets lost and so we uh yeah so we we watched every all four movies and then she came and watching the fifth one was a blast because i knew what was happening and that was it was much more helpful now i would not have enjoyed this at all um If we had just kind of showed up, especially if, I don't know if you saw that fifth film, but like there's this little twist in the middle of it. It was just like, what is, even people that know the story didn't know what was going on for a moment. I would have been completely confused had I not known what to expect or not to expect. Or, Anyways, the whole point was... That we understand innately that if we want to appreciate the climax of a story, we have to know the rising action and the setting and, and the beginning points and all these things that build up to it. Or else you don't appreciate or understand what is happening. You just see action and faces and things. And you're like, cool, I don't even know what's going on. Um, that's what Matthew understands. As he begins to tell the story of Jesus, he is saying Jesus is the climax to a long saga. And we need to, we need to, uh, do sort of like a, you know, when you watch shows, like, previously on, this is us, and then there's like a little, like, you know, this is what happened, so then, like, oh yeah, now we remember it and we can watch this. Matthew's basically doing previously in the Bible, there was Abraham, and then there was Isaac, and then there's Jacob, and then there's, um, uh, Judah, and then there was Paris through Tamar, and like, he's naming all these names, right? And he's giving us the story. He's catching us up. So that we remember the flow and the problems that, so that when he names Christ, we see what he's coming to solve. Now, you and I read these names and we're like, it doesn't tell me anything. Some of them are familiar. Some of them are not. Um, but to Matthew's Jewish readers, they would have caught on to all these. And it's a, it's a reminder of here's the flow of God's people. So Matthew's opening genealogy is telling us the story that Jesus fulfills. That's what he's doing. Why did he come? He's fulfilling this story. And the reason for starting this all, us with this also is that he's inviting us to join the story. It's not over. Jesus is bringing it to its climax. He's fulfilling it. But now there's this whole mass of people called the church who are going to take their place in this genealogy because we have been adopted as sons and daughters of God. So Christ is the pinnacle. But now we get to also insert our name in there. So this genealogy, I want to look at three uh, things about it, and then um, I want to really touch on what I see as a really important point about starting with a genealogy. So first, we'll look at some three things about it, because we just did verse one last time, and there's things in here that are like, they're interesting, right? Some of these names, and some of the things that he chooses to skip over. Um, the first is that as Calling this the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Matthew is completing the earlier genealogies. So I know we said this last week, but to recap, um, Genesis, you might remember, has 10 genealogies. And in the Greek translation of Genesis, it's the same word that's being used here when it says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So there were 10 genealogies. Matthew's presenting the 11th. This is the one that's finishing the story of the previous 10. Now, the reason there's a need for an 11th is because Genesis ends the last genealogy. It's the genealogy of uh, Jacob, um, which is really the story of Joseph, right? Um, These Joseph is Jacob's son. So what happened to Jacob? This is what happened to him. He had these sons, and they didn't like his one son, Joseph. And so they threw him into Egypt, and, you know, the whole story goes on. But the way Genesis ends, that 10th story, that 10th genealogy, the book ends with Jacob being buried and embalmed in a tomb. Literally, that's the last sentence, and and he was embalmed in a tomb. Genesis ends with death, and it's begging for a resolution, isn't it? And so the 11th genealogy presents Jesus Christ, and Matthew will also have his story end in death. But almost, there's one more part at the end, and Matthew takes this last, this 11th genealogy says, it will also end in death, but there's one more part in which Jacob did not come out of the tomb, but Christ comes out of the tomb, so that now Jacob and all the other offspring of God's people can come out of the tombs. See, this is one of the ways that Matthew's genealogy is completing the story, Um, also, you might remember that Chronicles, which is the in the Jewish order of the Bible, the way we studied it. So we had just finished Chronicles a few weeks ago, right? Um, Chronicles also. So Genesis opens the Old Testament with genealogies, and then Chronicles closes the Old Testament with genealogies. So it's 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 book ended with genealogies. Well, so. Um, Chronicles genealogy ends with an invitation. So it starts with a genealogy, right? Then the book of Chronicles ends with the king of Persia inviting all the Jews to return to their homeland and rebuild the temple. And that's just how it ends. It just ends with, come up to Jerusalem and build your temple. We don't know what happens in Chronicles, right? It just kind of leaves us hanging. And then there's this gap. And then Matthew opens up with a genealogy like Chronicles and says, that temple is being built in this story. That's why that temple, that little physical one they built, it wasn't that glorious. They wept over because it, it was so pitiful next to Solomon's temple. Well, Matthew's like, I'm going to pick up that story, and here's the temple. Oh, and by the way, here are some names, the living stones of this new temple, which is going to be a living temple. And so Matthew is, through his genealogy, he's completing the prior genealogies that didn't quite have a satisfactory ending. Um, also... Uh, so the, this genealogy completes earlier genealogies. This genealogy is ordered in three sets of 14 generations or 14 names. You notice that, right? You didn't notice that as you read. You're not like counting them up. But at the very end in verse 17, Matthew neatly summarizes it for us. And he says, he gives us the three segments. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14. And all from David to the exile were 14. And from the exile to the Christ were 14. So we have this neatly balanced genealogy of 14, 14, 14. Why? Well, one, it gives us a neat little story structure. So the first set goes from Abraham to David. It's the beginning of Israel It's the climax of what he's calling them to be a kingdom. But the David project doesn't work. It fails. So it goes from David to exile. The story crashes. And that's where Christ enters. Matthew enters to say, here's how we fix the exile problem. Here's how we fix it. And so Jesus is associated with David to bring the story back up to where it should be and to be the ultimate son of David who will reign on the throne forever and ever. We looked at that last week. Um, Okay, so... Uh, that's one reason for the 14 generations. But now there are three interpretations and nobody seemed to be the best. So I'll let you choose which is the best. But So why are we doing three sets of 14 generations? First possibility is that what Matthew wants to present is a dynastic document. A dynastic document. That means a document recording a dynasty, a royal lineage. So the reason uh, to look at it like that is because... Um, He's choosing 14 generations because from Abraham to David is actually really 14 generations. That's how long it took from Abraham to David. And you can recount that in scripture. So in, um, in Genesis, you can see from Abraham to Perez is five generations. And then in Ruth, at the end of Ruth, you can count from Perez to David, there's another nine generations. So there's actually 14 generations. The other two sets of 14 generations... So the list of kings in the middle, and then everybody after the exile at the end, there are gaps in the generation. Matthew is selective in his names in order to fulfill the number 14. So in other words, the first one is literally 14. The other two are symbolically 14. He's choosing the names. Why, you might ask? Because he's leading up the actual genealogy from Abraham to David. Boom, that's 14. And now David's the point. The middle of these 14 is a list of 14 kings because that's the point of the genealogy is that it's about kingship and Christ is coming from a lineage of kings. Then the last 14 is just trying to connect kingship to Christ. That's the idea of it being a a dynastic document. Uh, The second option is that he's doing these three sets of 14 generations because he's trying to show completion. What is half of 14? 14. Good. Good job. You all graduated something. Um, so if we have three sets of 14, that makes six sets of seven, right? Because if you do 14 and a half, so now we got six sets of seven. These are set, These are sections of completion, but we only have six of them. We need a seventh for the um, year of jubilee, if you will, like the 50th, if you will. And know it's 49 technically, but that's after the 49th is the year jubilee, the completion. Uh, we need a seventh segment. So Christ comes in as the seventh set. So we, then his story becomes a new creation week, a new sets of sevens, And so the church becomes the, you know, the, the outworking of this. Um That's, that's one other option. The third option is probably the most um, well, at least for me, it was the most well-known. I had heard about this before even coming to Matthew is, uh, do you guys know what it, it, the, it, it's that he's trying to emphasize David. He's trying to emphasize David. Do you guys know what a gematria is? Yeah, not by name, but maybe you've heard of this before. It was this method the Jews would have of assigning letters in their alphabet, a numerical value. So an example, yeah, you've heard of this and yeah. Okay. So yeah, an example of this would be like in, in English, we would say A is the value one, B is the value two, C is the value three. You just kind of give each letter a value. Um, in Hebrew, so David wouldn't have vowels. You just have three letters, D, V, D, to make it more relatable. Um, D, V, D. D would be a value of four, V, six, and D, four. So four, six, and four makes fourteen. So that, in other words, Matthew's trying to, with the fort, number 14, he's trying to say David through this whole thing to show that Jesus Christ is the son of David, the promised son who will sit on the throne forever and build God's ultimate temple. Um, only hesitation to that, because that sounds really cool, but the only hesitation is that every time the Jews did this, they were explicit about it. Matthew's not explicit about it. It's just kind of hidden. And other uh, hesitation is that what do the Greek readers do with this? Because this is being written in Greek. What do we do with that? Uh, does the Hebrew numerical values translate to the Greek or not? Some people, a lot of scholars still argue for this as being the main reason. Uh, but there is one little question about that. So that's, that's what's going on with this number 14. Three sets of 14s. One of those things or all of those things are happening. But what is very clear is that the main point is that the, 14, the sets, three sets of 14 give us a simple beginning, middle, and end story structure. The beginning of the Jewish story is Abraham. The middle is David. The end is exile. And that's how the Bible closes the old testament i mean yeah they were back in the land but they were still in exile there was no king there was no liberty there was no messiah the nations weren't flooding to their land the the land hadn't been purified and and grown to the garden of eden they were definitely oh come oh come emmanuel they were waiting for the coming one um now this story um we're going we're gonna to go through the names and talk about the story a little bit. Some of them are really worth highlighting. But I want us to look real simply at the story of the Old Testament through a metaphor. Um, Abraham was called out of a fallen world of sin and curse. Right? God made Eden beautiful. Heaven and earth were united. But then human rebellion separated these so that now God was there's a distance between God and heaven and humans and earth. There's a gap. And so methods had to be created for humans to approach God, but for the most part, the humans didn't want to approach God. And so instead of blessing, there's curse, and the land is just reacting to this, and humanity's struggling. And in the midst of this, Abraham is called, right? He's called out in the midst of this to change this, And so what God does is in this desert wilderness of the world that's no longer Eden-like, it's more desert-like now, he takes a seed, Abraham is the seed, and he plants the seed in the ground. It's not much. That's what Abraham is. He's the start of something. But then he has Isaac, he has Jacob, and then Jacob has his 12 sons. These become the roots of the seed. They begin to break out and through, and now something is still under the ground it doesn 't look like much, but the the foundation for something to come is digging into the soil and then a shoot begins to creep up out of the earth. The shoot is a people called out of Egypt, a people given a covenant with God. no more gap they 're with god they 're atoned. They're at one with him. And now they're, they're given a land and they're, they're given a king and this kingdom is built up. So the shoot is growing and growing and growing and it's, it's flowering. David's on the throne. God's promising this eternal kingdom and a son and a temple. And, and while now Solomon and the nations are coming to Israel, the nations are coming to be reunited with God, at least potentially. Solomon prayed, Lord, let the nations come to your house. Um, let them know you. And this is Israel's role to heal the world, to bring them back to God. They start coming to Solomon, mostly through the form of wives. The nations are sending people, but Solomon takes the wives of the people. And rather than leading them to Yahweh in the temple, they lead him to their temples and their gods. And we were oh so close. The flower was beginning to bud and then it didn't. His sons divide the kingdom. His son divides the kingdom, and then some other rebel takes the other tribes. Jehoram, uh, Jehoram, and um, Jeroboam. Jeroboam That's it, Jeroboam. Um, and uh, the kingdom divides, and then the exile happens. The Babylonians come. So we had a seed, and then we had roots, then we had this 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 shoot growing up, but the Babylonians chop it down, completely severed. And now Isaiah says, Isaiah 6, verse 13, says that the holy seed has become a stump. That's all that's left. It looks dead. Looks like it's over. But then what does Isaiah 11, verse 1 say? You know it. We read it last Sunday. Come on. (laughs) A shoot shall come out of Jesse, and it shall grow and bear fruit. And so um, we know that, the stump is not dead, dead. We have an oak tree behind our house in one storm. It completely cracked. And a huge, huge oak tree. It was, it was terrifying when it broke. That's another story, though. It fell away from our house, fortunately. And it was just, just like cracked over stump. But what ended up happening the next spring is that shoots began to grow off of the top of it. Multiple shoots. It looks like it just got like this big, messy hair day now. Um, this was Israel. They were dead, but now a shoot begins to grow. And what we now find in Christ, Isaiah chapter 27 verse 6 says that the days will come when Jacob shall take root and Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Eden's coming and it's Christ, the shoot of Jesse, who will, Jesse's the father of David, so the son of David, is going to bring fruit to the earth. That's our, that's what Matthew's going to be writing about. And so that's our brief story of the seed, the roots, the shoot, and eventually the fruit coming through Christ. He's the fruit of the seed. He's the fulfillment. This is what it was all meant to grow toward. So if if this was the point, if Christ is the fruit of the seed when Abraham was planted, right? If he's the fruit, then the whole point of the seed was to get to Christ. That's what we mean by fulfillment. It doesn't mean everything before that is now unnecessary. You can't, you can't take the fruit away from its roots or it's no longer going, it's going to rot. Um, it's necessary. He fulfills it because this was the purpose of it all. And um, this is the purpose of it all. Oh, that's what, yeah. Um, So what happens is if we don't take, grow from the seed and find Christ, we're not living fulfilled. And this is what happens is Judaism has basically said, okay, we have the same seed, but we're going to branch this way. And what the New Testament gospel writers go out of their way to basically say is that's what's happened. The Jews decided to branch off of this shoot. And so now they have not grown to the fulfillment. The church is not replacing. The church is not better than. The church and Christ are what all this was meant to grow into. The Jews decided, nah, we'll we'll do our thing instead. So it's important for us to see the fulfillment and to keep growing up into Christ. Um, okay, so that is the story of, of the Old Testament. Let's look at some of these names and what we might remember from this old story. Um, Abraham was the father of Isaac. This is verse two. And Isaac, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. We have a woman in this genealogy. That is super rare. You don't get women in genealogies in the Old Testament. But here, Tamar's brought in. Now, Tamar, often she gets a bad rap. You, do you remember the story, Tamar? I have to tell it to you because it is just bizarre that she would be mentioned here. Tamar was a Canaanite who was brought in to marry Judah's son. Now, the names of these sons, I didn't take the time to remember, so just go with it. The first son married Tamar, and he... Oh, Ur. His name was Ur. And he died without a son. So according to custom, the second son, um, Onan was supposed to marry Tamar to produce an heir for Ur. But Onan's like, I don't want my, I don't want my son to be my brother's son. So he literally just, um, didn't fulfill the marriage stuff. (laughs) My beloved kids are here. Um, so God struck him down dead. Onan was bad. He was refusing to carry on the lineage. Judah is going to carry the seed and the, the genealogy forward. But Onan's like, not doing it. So now the covenant's in danger. The, the, the heir to carry on the seed is in danger. Um, Judah has a third son, and he's too young. So Judah's like, just wait, Tamar. You can marry him some other day. But Judah has no intention of letting Tamar marry his third son. So he just completely ignores her. So what Tamar does, Judah's in total sin here. Judah is not letting the offspring of the covenant continue through his lineage. He's endangering the covenant. Tamar saves the covenant through wretched deception. So she dresses up as a prostitute. And Judah, who was not very moral yet, he will become a hero later. um, He sees her and says, oh, yeah, cool. All right, let's do this. Um, And so they do it. And um, Judah, uh, I'm sorry, Tamar births these two names, Perez and Zerah. They're twins. uh, But but, uh, Perez becomes the one who carries on the genealogy. And so we see that it was so close, like Judah saying, it's stopping here. But Tamar comes along and saves the covenant. And Judah acknowledges her righteousness in this. He doesn't condemn her. He recognizes that she deceived him to wake him up from his rebellion against God's plan to bless the nations through Abraham's seed. And from that moment on, Judah becomes a good guy in Genesis. He sticks up for Joseph, and he's the one who's willing to sacrifice himself later in the story on behalf of his brother. Um, Tamar is a hero. She's a heroine in the story. Um, So then we go forward, and we keep going down the list. And in verse 5, we see Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, another sketchy character, another woman. Um, Rahab is full-on Canaanite. She's not Jewish either. So here we have another outsider being brought into the lineage, and she's a prostitute. She is. Um, she invites the the spies who are spying out the land into her home. She lies about the fact that they aren't there, which not the sinful kind of lie. It's the righteous, sneaky in the spirit kind of wordings, like like not like I've never seen them before. It's just I have. No, I don't see them at the moment because they're on the roof behind me. <laughs> um, she she saves the spies and then she's brought into the covenant as she marries a Jewish man. Um, and then Ruth is the next one in verse five. And Ruth also was not only a, a Gentile, she was a Moabite, a Moabite. Now we've been going through Ezra and Nehemiah. So we remember the issue with Moabites and um, uh, Ammonites. These were born Boy, I didn't. I got to think about my kids being here. Um, these were born incestuously. There you go. Three lots. Um, and uh, God commanded that no Moabite or Ammonite shall enter into my presence ever for like 10 generations. Well, Ruth gets to, because his point wasn't that it's the race I reject, it's what they represent in their way of life. But Ruth becomes a convert. She puts her faith. In Yahweh, and she is brought into the community in the covenant, and she becomes the grandmother, or I think the great grandmother, of David. And so then we get to David, and we know David. Um, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Matthew doesn't even utter her name, but here we have our fourth woman in the story, and this time, by saying the wife of Uriah, he's emphasizing. Not Bathsheba's inclusion. She might have been a Hittite. Um, because Uriah was a Hittite. It's possible. We don't know for sure. But, um, by saying the wife of Uriah, it's emphasizing David's failure. He produced Solomon through someone else's wife. Ooh. And so now we see this, like, like, oh, David's, the, the kingdom's come to this, uh, the seed's come to this kingdom, but David's brought some rottenness to it. Um, And then we go further down, and in verse 8, Asaph is not even his name. Asaph is actually Asa, um, but they change, Matthew changes his name either because it's on purpose, because Asaph is actually the name of a psalmist, to kind of like, God's redeeming the evil in this line, or um, it's simply just the way Matthew spelled it. Um, We go down the kings. Some of these are good. Some of these are really bad. Um, Amos, at the end of verse 10, is actually Amon. Oh, he was actually decent. Um, uh, Let's see. And then Josiah. Then we get to the exile. So we went through all those kings just like only several weeks ago. We were going through those kings. So that's all review. Just the ups and downs, remember? Um, But it was Jehoram, Jotham, uh, verse 9. Uzziah, the father of Jotham, he was the guy who ordered his ways before the Lord. And he led He had no ups and downs. He was just an all-good king. You might remember that. Um, Okay, then we get to verse 12. And we have the exile. And Jeconiah was um, the last real king of David to sit on the throne. Um, The last one was Zedekiah, but he was put there as a puppet by Babylon, so he doesn't really count. and Jeconiah talks about his, his sons. We see Zerubbabel in verse 12. Zerubbabel is the one who was commissioned with rebuilding the temple. He was the governor during the time of the rebuilding of the temple. But then after that, we kind of fall out of the story, at least in the Bible, because these are just genealogies um, passed down and they don't really appear in the Bible until we get to Joseph, the husband of Mary in verse 16, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Okay. So some of the names worth pointing out, um, we, see, we see unexpected names, we see names who are daring and courageous to save the covenant, we see names that messed up royally, I mean literally, right, David royally messed up, um, we see good kings and bad kings in the middle of the mess, and then toward the end we see names we don't really know, but God knows them. So we have well-known names, lesser-known names. We have Jews, we have people from around the world. We have males, we have females. We have uh, saints, we have sinners. We have it all right here. So this genealogy is not just telling us a story. It's also introducing the world to Christ. Now, as I was sitting there, Thinking about this genealogy and just like, why do you start with the genealogy? Like, I get the whole story part, but like, you can kind of insert that somewhere else in the story, right? Luke puts it in chapter three. Could we start it differently? And I couldn't get out of my mind that God is just saying, this is how I introduce the world to Christ. I introduce the world to Christ through my people. How does the world know Christ? Through his people through you, and through me. This is how he chooses to reveal himself. And suddenly this genealogy sobers me. How am I carrying on the story of the gospel to the world? And what part am I communicating? Does the world see Christ in me? But but please don't miss this. Not just me. It's not, like, it's not like Matthew said, yeah, Jesus is the son of Abraham done the genealogy. Matthew is not saying that. He's individually revealed through each of us, although he is. But most importantly, Christ is revealed in his people together, that we form a link, a genealogy. We form a family a living genealogy, not of lots of deads and then soon to comes, but we are all one living genealogy. Yes, also connected with the dead and those to come too, but we form this presence of Christ. He told us that he would be among us, that he would be with us. And we as a people, it's so important that we fellowship, yes, on Sundays, but also in between Sundays, and that we build a presence of fellowship and unity because this reveals Christ to the world. He didn't introduce Christ with a miracle. That's how I would have done it. The storm whipped up out of nowhere. They were on the boat, terrified. And they were so skilled with the boat, but they didn't know what to do. It was the worst storm they'd ever seen. And they were bailing out water, and they were vomiting over the side, and they could taste death in their mouth. But then Jesus stood up, and with a word, Like Psalm 29. With a word, he calmed it all. Like Psalm 107. He showed that he was God by mastering the waters. And then I'd be, ooh, wow, Matthew, way to hook us. This is a, we're following this guy. He didn't introduce Christ to us through a miracle. He also didn't introduce introduce Christ to us through an explanation. Now, there was this son. He was... And then he just starts like explaining things like, yeah, yeah I, I, I know the whole 100% God and 100% humanity thing is like hard to understand, but here's what I mean by it. Now let me tell you a story. He didn't go with explanations. He's just, here's the story. Here's the people of God. Here's what comes out of the people of God, the presence of God's salvation. And I believe the reader is drawn into it and to realize, okay, God introduces the world to Christ through his people. So, Matthew, show us how to be God's people. And the gospel is going to show us how to be his people. Here's what John Chrysostom said. Um, most of you are familiar with John Chrysostom. It's been a while since we brought him up. So, if you aren't, he was the fourth century Charles Spurgeon. Chrysostom means golden mouthed. So, he was, he was just known for being a well spoken guy. Um, he's known as one of the hierarchs of the church. There's three hierarchs. These are like the pillars of doctrine. Um, John Chrysostom in his sermon on Matthew said this. I love this. When therefore you are told that the son of God is the son of David and the son of Abraham, doubt not anymore that you too, the son of Adam, shall be the son of God. Do you hear that? He's pointing out, Christ is the son of these humans, so realize you, the son of a human, can also become the son or daughter of God. Because the son of God came through humans. We'll, we'll flesh this out a little bit in a minute. Uh, For not at random, nor in vain, did he abase himself so greatly, only he was minded to exalt us. The reason he abased himself was to come to our place so he could lift us up. Um... He, thus he was born after the flesh or according to the flesh that you might be born after the spirit. He was born of a woman that you might cease to be the son of a woman but instead the sons of God. How does Christ do this? How does he make us sons and daughters of God? Chrysostom in just a sentence later uses this this illustration as when one stands between two persons and stretching forth both of his hands were to lay hold on either side of them and tie them together. So hand on one shoulder, hand on the other shoulder. I've now connected them through me. He says, um, even so has Christ done joining God's nature with man's, the things that are his with the things that are ours. So he's uniting the two natures together. More succinctly and famously, and unfortunately, we didn't get to do our Athanasius message. It's it's forthcoming. Um, But um, Athanasius, the great, in his famous work on the incarnation says, God became man so that man can become God. Now, obviously, he's not a Mormon. And if you read his greater work, you understand he's very—he's more thoroughly Christian than most of us are. He puts us to shame. I can't wait to share that with you guys later. Um, Athanasius puts, us, puts our understanding of Christ to shame. Um, <laughs> Tyler, after reading it, basically said, Athanasius just made it impossible for anything but Christianity to exist. Just in the way he argues it. Um, and he's saying that, he says, look, God becomes man. So by becoming man, by taking on our nature, putting it on God's nature himself, then he's enabled our nature to be completely participating in God's nature. So that's how we become sons and daughters of God is because he came and united us to him so that we can be united to God. If if human nature and divine nature are completely enmeshed and at union in Christ, then this is what happens through Christ for us and God. We have communion with almighty God. This is what is being said. Now, the genealogy telling us that Christ is the sons of these humans is hinting at this concept. So if we also are sons of humans, then we can also, like Christ, be sons of God. It's a wild promise that the Bible begins to hint at here and gets more fully fleshed out throughout the New Testament. So the reason that God wants to introduce the world through his people is because... Christ lives in his people. If I'm united with Christ, I am the closest representation of Christ to the world that there is. An apologetic or an argument or a doctrine, those are helpful and they might get people a step further, but those don't show them Christ. The way that my life united with Christ and obeying his commands and allowing his peace and his presence and his nature to work its virtues in me, that is what shows the world he's real. God introduces the world through his people because Christ is in his people. We abiding in him and him abiding in us. The way we get here, though, isn't easy. I mean, I would love to just stop right there and say, way to go, team. Go change the world. But unfortunately, we are often not ready to do this because we lack an important virtue, the most important virtue, the very first virtue that comes out of Christ's mouth. Do you know what it is? Blessed are the poor in spirit. spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is humility that we lack. When there's too much of me, there's too little of the divine nature. I rely too much on self. But the more I empty myself, the more my womb can conceive and bear Christ to the world. To just to kind of play on the Mary metaphor that's going to come up in the next section of Matthew. We need less of self so there'd be more of his indwelling. And as a church, especially, we are not awesome. We are, we're the, we're the losers in this genealogy. I'm mean, There is one absolute saint in this genealogy, I think, just about only one, Abraham. He lived the most incredible, patient, virtuous life. He did have a lapse, though. Um, but all the others, like they do, all of them do something bad or wrong, or at least have a sketchy reputation. We, by looking at this genealogy, let us not look down upon it and say, "Ah, oh, I'm so much better." I mean, David, come on, can you believe he did that? Really? Your week has probably been as David-like as his, although yours just isn't chronicled for history to see. Um, this genealogy reminds us. That we are the least, the last, and the lost of the world. It keeps it reminds us that we are from a humble stock. And so we, therefore, must be humble. Again, John Chrysostom. Nothing is so acceptable to God as to number oneself self with the last. This is a first principle of all practical wisdom for he that is humbled and bruised in heart will not be vainglorious, will not be wrathful, will not envy his neighbor, and will not harbor any other sinful passion. Humility. So we confess our sins. We remember who we are. We take our sins as seriously as God takes them. And the way we do that is to remember against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. We don't compare my, I don't compare my sin with Tim's sin because then I feel smug. <laughs> or or I despair, or I despair. <laughs> um, we don't also think, well, my sin didn't affect anyone, brothers and sisters. We forgot our sins are primarily against God. We wound the nature of God being born within us when we sin, and our humility is the way back. We open the womb and say, "I'm sorry, heal me." And in that place of desp- of, of desperation. That's where he heals us. That's where he mends us. That's where Christ comes in. Christ comes in the weak places of us. Humility will bring Christ to the world. So this is how we, like Mary, will beget Christ in us. This is how the world meets Christ and his people. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen.